All right, hey, again, welcome everybody, welcome to our guest. This is Michael. Michael is uh, one of our deacons here. He's going to be doing the message along together with me today, kind of back and forth style a little bit. I want to update you, though, on uh, Juan Pardo, our brother and former elder. You know, he just completed six years as an elder, uh, completing those two terms, and uh, was very involved in our kids' ministry. It's made a huge impact on our kids. He's really missed being here for the kids. And as many of you know, he has been battling cancer for quite a while. And, uh, he, you know, he's been going through chemo, but that's been too tough on him. So he stopped that and uh, just recently entered hospice. And so uh, we, were, we had been hoping for a while to honor him in front of everybody up here on the platform, but not able to do that. So the elders went to his home, his and Stacy's home recently, and uh, laid hands and prayed for him. But we also presented him a plaque. So we wanted to show you that. If we could put that on the screen. There's one uh, with the plaque that reads, a recognition award presenting to Elder Juan Pardo in sincere appreciation for your dedicated service to South Point Church 2015 to 2021. Your contribution was critical to our success, wanting downriver to Christ. So um, please pray for Juan. He is in his, his final days, unless God miraculously intervenes. So we're praying that, you know, if he's... If he's to go be with the Lord, that it's just a, a peaceful thing that, um, you know, is an easy transition for him. And we look forward to seeing him here, there, or in the air, right? So let's get back into 2 Corinthians, finish out this letter, chapter 13. And as I said, Paul is giving his final warning, his final appeal. Like, I'm coming there, I'm going to show up, and you better have your act together before I do. And really, it's more of a reminder to us that Jesus is going to be coming back one day, and we best get our acts together before he does, because it ain't going to be pretty if we don't, right? But if, if we're living for him, then it's going to be a good thing. Uh, otherwise, you know, hey, we need to give up those ways of the world and be moving toward Christ-likeness, which is what our big idea is about today, is be sure you're moving toward perfection. Now, we should be clear, though, what exactly do we mean by perfection? Perfection, well, Jesus was perfect, right, the only one. Uh, we know that we're never going to be like Jesus, but perfection holds the idea of spiritually mature, of being fully grown and complete in Christ. So you never quite arrive in this life. It's always a process and you're progressively moving toward becoming more and more like Jesus. But until then, we're still imperfect. I'm imperfect, you're imperfect. We're an imperfect church. But God's ideal, his dream is that we would be made perfect. And we're far from it but we're a work in progress. And so that's the Corinthian church. They had serious problems, but they're still God's people. And that's why Paul expresses his concern for them so strongly. So let's go ahead and start with verse one. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it kind of seems to be referring to like a courtroom scene here. Why is that? Well, because you remember throughout this letter, we've seen how he's been accused by false teachers there in Corinth of uh, all kinds of stuff that, you know, just wasn't true. They had, they sought to undermine him. Like, don't listen to Paul. He's, he's not a good guy. I mean, he, um, he's weak. He's not a good speaker. Um, He's unimpressive. He's inferior to us, which is why Paul mocks them as being these super apostles. Uh, So 
the idea here is when he arrives, he wants, wants him to knock it off. Okay, enough's enough. I want to hear the evidence against me. Uh, it's time to put up or shut up. Tell me to my face what's really wrong. No more half-truths and hearsay and accusations. No more lies and slanders. I want to hear the, the proof. Right, so bring on the witnesses. And this principle of two or three, it's a, it's a biblical principle, right? We see Jesus refer to this in Matthew 18. Uh, two or three gather, I am there. And that verse can also often be used out of context, people talking about praying. But really, if it's just one of us, yeah. he is there as well. And what Jesus is really talking about is uh, church discipline, right? And that's that kind of seems what Paul's referring to here. If you're going to call me out, bring two or three witnesses yeah. with you. Let's handle this. Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament because if you don't have at least two or three witnesses, you've got like a he said, she said kind of case, which, you know, who, who, how do you know who's telling the truth? I mean, a lot of people have had their lives destroyed. They've been condemned and canceled and their reputations wiped out because of just one bad report and everybody believes it. So he says, that's not fair, that's not right. Um, bring on the witnesses. And I think we as Christians have to be especially known for believing and spreading truth and not be involved in spreading rumors and innu innuendos and uh, spreading lies that have no factual basis. We need to have the facts. So Paul is basically also saying, I'm gonna deal with the facts those who have been you know, accusing me of this stuff, causing problems, I, 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 it's not gonna be based on just one bad report. Let's, let's lay out the facts, let's see the evidence, and then we'll, we'll see who's telling the truth here. The truth will be confirmed. So let's keep going, verses two and three. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So he's saying he warned them repeatedly, and now he's not going to spare them. Kind of sounds a little ominous. What exactly is he going to do here? <laughs> it does. Well, I mean, he's, he's wanting them to shape up, to discipline themselves. Kind of like dealing with your kids, right? You, you discipline them in the hopes that they'll eventually discipline themselves. You're a parent, so how, how does that discipline work in your home? Yeah, so my home, I, I'm usually the one who disciplines right. that. The, the kids know that, they recognize that. Yeah. They'll often walk right past me and ask mom for something because they know they can get away with it with her. <laughs> she, she's not listening. Okay. <laughs> but even when it will be like, I'll just be even be on the phone and I can hear him in the background. She'll be like, your dad's on the phone. He can hear what you're doing because yeah. she knows they're not going to listen to her. Yeah, I, I, I got to say kind of the same thing in my house is uh, like when mom makes a threat, it's, they kind of know it's an idle threat, right? It's a, it was an empty threat, like she's not going to carry through. I do that sometimes, but more often than not, it's like, no, we tell you one time and you do it. But you, you, in your house, you do the count to one, two, three. I'm going to give you to three, one, two, three. And then, of course, you know, it means nothing uh, because really they ought to do it first time. But the idea is you want them to be able to discipline themselves. And, uh, but Paul's saying, if you don't discipline yourselves, I'm going to have to come there and straighten you out. Yeah. But and what exactly does he mean by that? Like, what's he going to do to I, them? I don't know. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it is ominous because it's going to be painful. I mean, it's not going to be a pleasant visit. Um, he wishes it would be. And 
I, I, I don't want us to get a picture here of Paul being this you know, tough, hard-nosed guy. It's really just the opposite. He oozed with compassion, which is what his opponents accused him of. Like, this guy's weak. Um, where's his power? Paul's like, well, if you want to see power, I'm going to show you some power. You're not going to like it too much. Um, but you've got to confront that. It's not like Paul loved confronting people. Like, nobody loves confrontation. But sometimes you've got to do it, right, because of what's at stake. And his authority is at stake, which means his, his ability to teach the gospel, to teach the word of God, is at stake. And he can't let them get away with what they're doing. So he, he's got to show them, you, you've got to listen to me or else, you know, you're heading down the wrong path. So nobody wants to confront. But if you care, you'll, you'll confront. So uh, it's tough, though. I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage. And it can be tough to confront people, too, because often yeah. their response is going to be, well, who are you to tell me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and Paul's like, who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. He's already boasted about his weakness. But he says, it's so Christ's power can be seen in me. So, yeah, I'm an apostle of Christ. I have authority to do this. Uh, I don't want to have to do it. But you need to listen to me because I, I do have this apostolic authority. And it's kind of like traffic laws. You know, if you're going down the road the wrong way, if I care, I'm going to say, hey, you know, stop it. Don't go that way. Like, who are you to tell me? You didn't make up the law. No, but that, that's the law. And if you keep going that way, you're in trouble. That's Paul. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not the law. He is. But I'm telling you the right way to live. So pay attention to that. So uh, he, he's going to show power. I don't know how, but it's not going to be good. Not in the way they hope. All right, so is that what he's saying when he's referring uh, to Christ not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you? Um, yeah, he, he's, he's talking about, I think, his, his power as an apostle to, to set them straight. Because, he, again, he wasn't an impressive-sounding guy. He probably wasn't an impressive-looking guy. You know, there's some reference to that in church history that... He wasn't much to look at or to, to listen to. And so I think we all can fall into that place of evaluating Christian leaders wrongly. We, we look at how eloquent they are, how charismatic or how dominant they are, instead of looking at how biblical and humble and godly they are. That's the measure of a good leader, right? So um, let's, get, let's get back into verse 4. Because he's going to talk, I think he's going to talk about Jesus too. Yeah, so he kind of relates this example to yeah. Jesus himself. He says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Yeah, so he's saying Jesus uh, appeared weak on the cross, but we all know he actually was powerful. He had unlimited power, he could call down the armies of heaven to decimate his enemies, but he held that power under control. Why? For their good, for our good, for our salvation. His power was really demonstrated in what? In his resurrection. And it will be fully unleashed at his return. And again, if you're not ready for Christ's return, if you're not living for him, it's going to get pretty ugly. and going to be a pretty sight to see him unleash his power. But if you're ready, if you're living for him, then you welcome that display of power. Uh, um, but what happens is we tend to think, well, I, I don't have to start living for Christ right today. I can get to it later, and we delay it and delay it, like until, well, when I get my life cleaned up um, later on, then I'll, then I'll start living for, no, 
couple of things wrong with that is one, if you wait to clean up your own life, that's never going to happen because you need the power of God to help you do that. And secondly, Jesus could come back today, so it could be too late if you wait. So um, get right with him now. Repent and let him do the work in you beginning right now. So let's go back to verses 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. All right, so how would one exactly examine themselves? What exactly does this test look like? Well, he's talking about passing a test. Like, is there any evidence that you're the real deal? Or are you a counterfeit, right? I've mentioned here before about a song that made a big impact on me as a teenager called, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you, right? If they called in witnesses, what would they point to to show that you are a genuine Christian, which is a very convicting thing to me. And for the Corinthians, there hadn't been a whole lot of evidence of their faith because they'd been, you know, doing all kinds of bad behaviors and challenging Paul's authority. So Paul kind of flips the tables on them and he says, you've been demanding proof from me. How about some proof from you? Let me see if you're the the real deal. Are you just playing religious games here? You better check yourself before talking about me. You think about it in school, giving a test. Teachers give out tests because they want you to learn something and that's the evidence is if you learn something. Teachers don't give tests because they're mean, usually, or you know, because you know, they're having a bad day. They're doing it because they want the best for you. Uh, and it reflects on how well they've taught you. So teachers are rooting for you to pass the test. They don't wanna fail anybody. They wanna give everybody an A if they can, but it's gotta be a legitimate test. So I think going on with Paul, he's the one that led them to Christ. He's the one that's been teaching them. So it reflects on him how well they do in their Christian walk. Are they, and they're not doing that well. They're kind of squeaking by with maybe a D or a D plus, And he's like, you can do better. Like you need to be going for that A on the exam. And really we all fall short. So nobody's getting an A. Is he gonna be grading this like on a scale? Is it pass <laughs> or fail? Uh, well, uh, yeah, salvation is pass or fail. I mean, you're either in Christ or you're not. Uh, God doesn't grade on the curve in regard to your salvation, but in terms of your spiritual growth, yeah, you can always do better. You can improve and and get a a better grade, and so he's rooting for us. I want you to do better, so do a a self-exam. You know, it's not, fortunately, when you you take a test for the Lord, it's not one and done, and you blew it, and you're over. Every day, you're taking new tests, so make sure you're growing that you're putting away your sinful behaviors and your worldly ideas and that you're, you're moving toward perfection, that you're perfecting yourself in him. Because I think a lot of times, Christians, we, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing better than we are. Or we, we think, well, you know, um, a long time ago I made a decision for Christ. I, I raised my hand, I said a prayer, and you know, I'm good, but where's the evidence? Where's the growth? Are you any different? Or, you know, your parents raised you in a Christian home, they had a lot of faith, and you think, you know, you're going to skate by, you know, on what they've done. No. Um, Are you living for Christ? Are you showing the proof in your own walk? And again, um, even if you fail, you can can keep going, you know, it's it's not one and done. Keep improving yourself. Let's let's go back and uh, what are we ready for? Verse 7? 
Yes, verse yeah. 7. So, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Yeah, so he, again, he's hoping that they pass the test, not for, their own, not for his benefit to show what a great teacher he is, but for your sake, I want you to shape up, I want you to get your act together, because look at the next verse, verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And uh, this is something we really need to live by today. It really seems like in our culture, especially, it's you know, what's true for you is good for you, but what's true for me, that's my truth. Yeah, that's you know, the whole postmodern secular approach that we see is influencing everybody more and more. More people are making decisions based on that relative idea of truth than we realize, including in the church, that you know, it's, it's, there's really kind of these two ways of thinking. There's the way that says, well, whatever I say is right, is right, or what God says is right, is right. Whatever subjective thing I feel, that's how I'm going to live my life, or what is God's objective standard, that's what I'm going to live my life by. And unfortunately, I I just saw a poll in the past week that said only 41% of Americans base their idea of moral truth on God. In other words, the vast majority of people now live their lives as they go, just making it up, whatever they feel like in the moment, instead of saying, no, there's a God who says what's right and wrong. So um, Jesus, you know, he was all about the truth. And again, we got to be people that are zealous for the truth. You're either for it or you're against it. And we know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, you will know the truth and what? Everybody, the truth will set you free. So that's the way we need to be conducting our lives. We are known as people of truth. So let's go to verses 9 and 10. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So what exactly is he getting at here? Yeah, well, he said, I don't want to have to be severe in my use of authority. So he said, that's why I'm writing you now, so that when I do show up, it'll be a pleasant visit, not a confrontational drama. Um, It's going to be much better if you get your act together right now, because I'd rather be able to just not have to say another word about this, and we get on with these things. So I'm appealing to you. I'm warning you. I'm praying to God for you. uh, Get it together. And all good spiritual leaders want that for the people they lead, they, they want to build them up and not tear them down. True, like every parent, every educator, really every kind of leader, you want to build up those you're leading and not tear them down. I mean, when we confront or when we try to correct or whatever, it's not because we're being hostile. It's not because we're being overly critical or manipulative or demeaning. Uh, It's because we want it for your good. And sometimes to get you to where you need to be, you do have to do a little bit of tearing down first before you can build up right. Or if you have to do some cutting, you you also need to have the band-aids ready to apply the healing. Otherwise, people get very discouraged and demotivated. If you're always just, you know, on their case and negative, the point is I'm here to help you, to build you up, to help you perfect your faith. So let's go ahead and finish this out, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. 
aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love in peace will be with you. So he seems to string together a couple of short commandments here. Why do you think he does that? Well, again, I think he's just tying up loose ends, wrapping it all together in this letter. First of all, he's saying rejoice, which is just another Greek way of saying farewell. It's like when we say goodbye, we realize, you know, where that comes from. It comes from God be with you, goodbye. So he, he says, look, repent, get restored, get right, get aligned with God's word, agree with one another about the important things and come alongside to encourage one another. I want you to mend your ways. I want you to mend your, your um, differences. I want you to fix what's broken. I, I think about um, back when my son Thomas was in junior high playing soccer, one day he got injured, popped his shoulder out. So we took him across the street here to, uh, to the hospital and we were in uh, the ER waiting and waiting and waiting for a doctor to show up and it, it drug on and he just got tired of waiting so he finally just popped it back in himself, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but you can understand, like, all right, I'm just going to do it myself. Well, Paul is saying in a, in a good way, like, hey, pop it back in yourself before the doctor shows up, all right? It's better that you guys who are disjointed pull it together and uh, be perfected because God's given you this love. He's given you peace. He, he's given you this environment where help and hope and unity can be displayed. That's where, that's where you can grow. All right, last couple verses here, 12, 13. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. All right, so what's the deal with this holy kiss? <laughs> this isn't something we should be doing today, right? Uh, well, it is a command, but I'm not going to be kissing you, Mike. <laughs> I will say after the first service, I went out in the lobby and I got a big kiss on the cheek. <laughs> from Ken Tomalak, a big hairy kiss right on the cheek. That sounds like him. Yeah, I know. Um, I don't know, uh, it, it almost sounds like when siblings are fighting and parents will say, now I want you two to, to shake hands, I want you to kiss and make up, and they don't feel like it, but all right. You know, just to show we still love each other. Uh, I don't, what, do you think it's a transcultural command or is this more of a cultural expression of a principle. If I'm being honest, if you came up to me and kissed me, yeah. I'm going to start thinking like South Point has joined the mafia and Brett has kissed me on the cheeks, welcomed me <laughs> to the family. Okay. I'm going to look at Rachel like, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I would think that's a cultural thing because we yeah. do see it in some cultures still today. Yeah, well, it was definitely part of the culture back then. And yeah, around the world, a lot of people still give, give a little peck on the cheek to one another. Um, we're not really in that kind of culture. I think the only ones who really can get away with those kind of kisses are if I could, older people. Like, what are you going to do? Like, they come up and give you a kiss? Like, okay. Like Ken Tomlack. But who? Like Ken Tomlack. <laughs> He's younger than me, though, so I don't like to think that way. Um, but yeah, if somebody younger comes up and gives you a kiss, like, whoa, what, what, what was that? You know, what's going on? Um, so I think we're more of a hugging culture, but uh, even hugging can get weird, too. Right? I mean, when it's too close or too long, it's kind of creepy. Um, sometimes just a you know, good old pat on the shoulder is good enough, pat on the back. But here, during this time of COVID, we have been told not to express affection in physical ways. And so we've been refraining from all that. And um, so, you know, we used to shake hands and, and hug and, and all that. Um, 
Because again, I think maybe the principle is a, a holy hug. If we're not going to be kissers, we'll be huggers. But now it's more like, you know, should I? Should I stick out my hand? Should I, should I just do a fist bump? Should I just keep my distance and wave? You know, nobody knows what to do anymore, and it's still weird. Um, I, I, I tend not to initiate physical contact. If somebody wants to, then I will, but it is, I just don't know what they want. So, you know, fist bumps are nice, but still kind of missing something. Um, I, I think maybe we should look at the holy kiss in the same way we look at foot washing. You know how some Christians will wash one another's feet because Jesus said you should wash one another's feet and it's like a command, so they take it literally. But I don't think it has the same meaning today as it did back then when you know, you'd be walking around barefoot in mud and gunk and all kinds of stuff and you enter somebody's house and somebody would have to humble themselves to wash your stinky, ugly feet, right? So it doesn't carry the same meaning today if you walk into my house and I wash your feet, which is not gonna happen. So it's more of a symbolic thing, and I think the holy kiss thing is, is more symbolic. The principle is just let's continue to show you know, affection and appreciation for one another in appropriate ways, whatever that may be. All right, let's move on. <laughs> final, in. final verse here, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we see Paul's offering his closing benediction, a blessing, uh, but it seems also that he's making a clear reference to the Trinity, the Father, the yeah. Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, do they play different roles here? Yeah, well, th there are three distinct persons within the one divine being, right? So um, they're not, they do have distinct roles, but because they are all three equally divine, their roles sometimes overlap, so it's hard to say, well, the Father does this and the Son does that and the Spirit does that. But in this case, you know, grace is connected to Jesus. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. He came and gave his life for us on the cross. And that's something we did not deserve and we cannot earn through our own good works. It's a gift of grace through Jesus. But it begins with God the Father's love, right? God so loved the world that he gave his Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And when you respond in faith and repentance and baptism, to that offer, you receive not only forgiveness of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in you, God living in you, to unify us in fellowship with one another and to empower us to live for Christ, right? Because we're forgiven, but we're still not there yet. We're not perfect. I'm still not a perfect person. You're not. We're still not a perfect church, but we're in process and it's we're, we want to progress in that so be sure you're moving toward perfection because when you live in God's love and you depend on his grace and his fellowship then you're going to be making progress so I want to give everybody an opportunity to respond and wherever you're at whatever your next step is and um, the music is going to play here in just a few moments. And while the music is playing, one thing you can do is make the best decision of your life to come to, come to Christ in faith, to turn from your sin, to be baptized into him. We have everything you need right here on the spot. We got some warm water back there, some towels, clothes, robes, hair dryers, you name it. But you can experience that new life, filling with the spirit, washing away your sins if you'll turn to him today. Or maybe you just have questions about that. 
You need some prayer. You need to talk to somebody about where do I go from here? Well, that's what these next few moments are. You can come up to the front, talk with one of my friends up here, or you can text your name to the number on the screen or email us, especially if you're watching online. We'll get back to you as soon as possible so that we can help you take your next step. But if you're a believer in Christ already, then there's a couple other ways that you can respond. So if you are a believer, you've made that decision, repented, you've been baptized, uh, we're going to share in this meal together, uh, this communion, which we do here every week because it's, it's something that's taught in Scripture. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians. And we, uh, we do this to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We have the, the bread that represents his body that was broken, that took the beating really we deserved. And then his blood uh, represented by the juice that was shed, which washes us clean. So we're seen as righteous in God's eyes. We have the righteousness, righteousness of Christ because of what he did for us. And then another way that uh, we're gonna go into our time of worship uh, is through our giving. And if you are new with us today, we don't ask you to give anything because you're our guest. We actually have a gift for you. So if you'd stop by the point after the service, which is in the main lobby across from the main entrance, uh, you can grab that gift. But for those of us who call South Point home, uh, we give because we believe in the mission of South Point. We, we're buying into that. We want to give to grow the kingdom of God and win downriver to Christ. And our giving is what allows us to continue that mission, to uh, continue winning souls for, for Christ. Yeah. And when you give, you know, give, we want to give generously. And you know, think about Halloween. What kind of giver are you going to be on Halloween? Are you going to be one of those homes where the kids come up and you, you hand them a handful of candy corn and a couple of dum-dums and a hunk of double bubble? You know, wow. <laughs> kids are not going to love you at all. But if you're one of the houses where, oh, it's the big Snickers bar or it's the Reese's, you know, peanut butter cups or uh, it's the... Uh, the, the, the hundred grand, you know, that's generosity when you give a hundred grand, right? Um, that's what we're talking about is your generosity shows your heart and what you care for, you know. So let, let's go to him in prayer right now. Father, we want to thank you for giving your son for us, giving your very best. And uh, I want to pray for those who need to give their lives back to you. Um, Lord, there's some here right now who may be saying, Lord, I know that I... I have not been perfect and I know I never will be in this life but I know I can be forgiven and one day you'll make me perfect so I want to give my life to Jesus I don't want to look back and, and waste another moment I don't want to feel like I've squandered my life on things that really don't matter thank you Lord though that it's not too late that uh, from this time forward however long I've got left Father I want to give it all to you. And so, Lord, I pray some will make that best decision today. Others, Lord, are, um, are praying, uh, strengthen me. Uh, I need help for um, what I'm going through right now. I need to know what my next step is to grow in my faith, to be more committed to you, to be serious about my walk with you. Lord, we believe that you love us, that you sent your son for us, that uh, you have given your grace to us through the cross, that you give us power through the Holy Spirit. And so Father, I pray that you will move on each of us now to, uh, to leave this place differently than we came in. Closer to you, farther along in our walk, stronger in our faith, because we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So use this time for communion. Come up, talk, pray. 
whatever you need to do.